You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Amen. Well, it's good to see you. Please take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1 is where we'll begin today. Well, we started our series last week, reading through the entire book of Hebrews, which is easily will be the best sermon I've ever given. And so it's all downhill after that until I read an entire book of the Bible next time. And then that'll also be the best sermon I've ever given. Well, today we now go in through the text and see what it is that God wants to show us through the book of Hebrews. And I think we'll be really helped this morning as we see what God has for us in Hebrews chapter one. And as we do every week, if if you're new and if you're able, uh, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. And we'll begin reading in Hebrews one, Chapter 1, verse 1, and here's what the Spirit says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited as a name more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son and today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us now. As we hear your word and as we dive into your word, would you meet us and encourage us, inform us, correct us, change us, Lord. Help us to see your glory, King Jesus. Meet us now. Encounter us now. And it's in your mighty name we pray, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Our family... Went to Disney World a couple weeks ago. We had a lot of fun. It was a blast. All the rides, the parks, the characters, the food, and just the family time was great. And I, and I noticed a theme uh, when we went on a lot of these rides. The usual instructions, remain seated, watch your step, no flash photography. And I heard, began to hear that a lot. And I started wondering, why? What's the big deal with me taking a picture? And then I noticed when we went to this Little Mermaid show and the stage is completely blacked out. You, can, you can't see anything. It's very dark in the room. But all of the puppets, they have, you know, the crab comes out or see a lobster, he's a lobster. He comes out and then you got the flounder, the fish, and you got all the characters and they're all glow-in-the-dark puppets. 
And they said again, no flash photography during the show. And it makes sense why you don't want flash photography during that show. Because if someone took a picture with light, then you would see everything. You, it would spoil the whole show. You would see all the people walking around who are all wearing black. You would see all the stage hands moving stuff around. It would kind of pull back the curtain on the show, and it would spoil it for you and, and for everyone else. In kind of a way, you would see how the sausage is being made. And they said, don't, you don't want to see that. Well, here in Hebrews chapter 1, it's kind of like the writer says, take all the flash photography you want. Look at and look at reality. See it. He pulls back the curtain on the Bible and shows us reality. He, he pulls back the curtain on the angels, and he pulls back the curtain on your life, and he pulls back the curtain on the universe, saying, look at how this all works. Here, God shows us what's really happening in the universe in chapter 1, and who stands at the center of it all, and his name is Jesus. And I jotted down 14 things just from Hebrews chapter 1 that the Bible is showing us about Jesus. 14 things we're going to learn about Christ. You're not going to have time to write these down. And if you, if you somehow do manage to write these down, you should be a courtroom typist because that would be impressive. I'll post them on the internet. You don't need to write them down. But you can discover them all for yourself. They're all right here in chapter 1. Number one, Jesus is God's sermon. He is the heir of all things. Jesus is the co-creator of all things. He is the exact brilliant display of God. Jesus guides and sustains the entire universe. He made the final sacrifice and payment for our sins. Jesus is the risen, he is risen and reigning in the heavens. He is God's son. Jesus is worshiped by the angels. And really all of chapter one is laying out how Jesus is better than the angels. He sits on God's throne. Jesus is God. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. Jesus is eternal. He is unswervingly the same. Beloved, Jesus is more incredible than we realize. And when you see this, these, these 14 things, and if you're reading with attention, which I hope you are, as, as you just heard me summarize them and you heard them all earlier as we read through, we should wonder, why does Hebrews open this way? Why does the book of Hebrews begin with this gospel bombardment of how amazing Jesus is line after line after line? And I think this is why. Because the most amazing thing and the best thing that could happen to us this morning is us catching a glimpse of the awesomeness of Jesus. The best thing that could happen to you, the best thing that could happen to you today, the best thing that could happen in your life it's for you to catch a glimpse of how amazing Jesus is. The best thing that can happen to us throughout this entire series in the book of Hebrews is us feeling and responding to the gravitational force that is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Because knowing Jesus and beholding Jesus for who he is is the most practical and helpful thing that could happen to us today. No, no matter what's happening in your life, what burdens you have, whatever temptations you're facing, whatever doubts and fears and anxieties are pestering you, Jesus himself is what we need. Listen, if your marriage is struggling, a book on marriage may be temporarily helpful, but encountering Jesus and all that he is is more practical and more helpful. If your parenting is wobbly and 
you're unsure of what to do, a book or a sermon on parenting may bring a temporary balm of relief, but beholding Jesus and all of his glory is the only way you'll find the ultimate understanding in the universe. If you're anxious about your work or about school and you're upset about sins in your life, five keys to handle stress will not ultimately help you. You need the master, and who is the master key himself? Hebrews, if I could sum it all up, is about looking to Jesus. This is the whole point of the whole book, that we would look to him, the one who is the authentic, all-powerful, and all committed to you, Jesus, is what we need. We can quickly learn Jesus is amazing and he is all powerful and he is strong and he is mighty. But what we can often forget is that this same cosmic Christ is also committed to you. He's all powerful, all amazing, and he is an all in for your good. He is all in for your joy. He is all in for your life. So we must look to him. And here's really why this fits with Hebrews, because See, let me give you some background of the book of Hebrews. If you learn this, this will make the entire book of Hebrews make sense. The Hebrew Christians, the original audience of this book was receiving this sermon written down for them. They were tempted to turn their backs on Christianity. At this time in the Roman Empire, to be a Christian was to be an outcast because the Jewish religion, what they came out of, had legal protection from Rome. They were allowed to not worship all the other gods in the Roman Empire. They didn't face any consequences if they didn't go and burn incense to the imperial cult, which was to worship Caesar. They had a hall pass on worshiping Zeus and Poseidon and all of these other Greek gods. But Christians, they didn't have any legal freedom. They didn't have religious liberty. They refused, these Christians, so they refused to worship all the Greek gods. And they refused to bow down to all the imported idols, this buffet of idols that was in the Roman Empire. And they took it a notch further. Not only did they refuse these idols, it wasn't that the early Christians just said, you know what, Uh, Zeus kind of doesn't fit my life plan, so I'm going to go a different way. But it's good for you. They didn't ever say that. They were saying, we're not going to worship Zeus, and you shouldn't either. It's nothing. He's a statue. Why, Why are you pouring out a drink offering to Poseidon when you go on this journey on the ocean? You don't need to do that. Why don't you just pray to the living and true God, the only God, and he will see you through. You see, you can see how the early Christians, they were beginning to really stir things up. They refused to worship all the Greek gods, and they told everyone you shouldn't worship them either. They're all fake. And Christians even begin to look weird. They called each other brother and sister. They ate a meal of some, someone's skin and blood. They greeted one another with a holy kiss. They didn't have an altar. They didn't do sacrifices. They didn't even have any images. And they were different from every other religion. They began to look like weirdos. And and now, this began to see as a political move. When they told people, we don't worship Caesar. We have one king. Rome heard that as a threat to their Roman way of life. The Roman way of things that they would worship some convicted criminal who they say is raised from the dead. So the heat turned up on these Hebrew Christians, seen as freaks, outcasts, weirdos, antisocial. They were persecuted, robbed, mistreated, imprisoned. 
So it became so difficult to be a, a Christian. These Hebrew believers, they started toying with the idea of, you know what? Maybe we should go back to Judaism. It has all the legal protections. We, we can still honor God and we can go to the temple. We, we'll still honor Jesus. But if we go back, man, we'll be protected. We won't be mistreated. We'll be fine. And the point of the book of Hebrews is to tell them you won't be fine. You won't be fine eternally if you do that. You can't go back. And this, uh, this makes sense for the rest of the book, why he slams the high priest. Because Jesus is now the high priest. Those high, the high priest did nothing. The blood of bulls and goats can't do anything. Only the blood of Jesus can do something. The temple is nothing. Jerusalem is insignificant. We await a heavenly Jerusalem. You can't go back. Jesus was a sacrifice once and for all. If you do try to go back, you'll lose it all, and you're just going to an empty shell of religion. This is why all the warnings and all the encouragements that are scattered throughout the book of Hebrews, they are sprinkled through like anchors to remind them to stay committed to Christ. Look at 2.1. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. After he goes on this whole thing about how Jesus is the real deal, how he's greater than angels, 2.1. Therefore, since all of chapter 1 is true, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. This is the first command in the book. This really sets up the entire burden of the book. He doesn't want them to drift away, to leave Christianity. And these are, this is all throughout the book. I put four of them, four other verses just here up on the screen. Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, which what would that do? Leading you to fall away from the living God. 3.14, for we have come to share in Christ. How do we know if we're Christians, if we are in Christ? If indeed, if for sure, we hold our original confidence, Christ died for our sins, raised from the dead, if we hold that firm to the end. So he tells them, you can't just say, yeah, I'm a Christian and not stay committed. People can say all kinds of things. But he says, the proof is those who hold firm till the end. 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. Do you, do you hear all of these? Let's not drift away. Let's not fall away. We gotta hold our confidence till the end. Hold fast your confession. Don't throw away your confidence. On and on, he's telling them, do not leave Christianity. Do not leave Christ to go back to Judaism. For you have need of endurance. We must endure so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This is all to encourage the Hebrew Christians and to encourage us to keep walking with Jesus. You can endure this world with him. You can make it together with him till the end. And this book really matters for our time. This is why I picked this book, because I think the season that we're entering into for the rest of our lives is very much like that of the Hebrew Christians. It is now becoming increasingly unpopular to be a Christian in our culture, especially to live it out. Like the Hebrew Christians, they didn't bow down to Zeus, and they were seen as antisocial. They didn't take part in the true Roman way. And because we won't bow down to our culture, we are being seen as antisocial, a threat to the American way of life. You just saw it this past week because Christians, 
won't bow down to the views of marriage in our culture and homosexuality. We seem antisocial. BuzzFeed and Cosmopolitan attacking fixer-upper Chip and Joanna Gaines. Not because they money laundered, not because they have some scam, but because they go to a church where the pastor holds a biblical view of marriage. Now they're attacked and vilified as blasphemers of the American way of life. There is no place for us to hide anymore in American culture. And our temptation, when the heat gets turned up like the Hebrews, might be something like this. Well, I'm committed to Christ and I'm committed to the church, but I, it's just not convenient for my career. So, I'm, you know, I'm going to follow him, but there's some things I need to do to propel myself forward. Or we might think things like, well, I believe in Jesus, and, but I think that's more of a personal thing. Um, I don't need to talk about it. I, I don't have to live it out for all to see, and I don't want to rub it in people's faces. And I mean, who am I to tell other people what's right and wrong? We might be tempted to fall back into a nominal, lazy, lukewarm, soggy, culturally acceptable Christianity, kind of just like the Hebrews. Falling, dialing back from what is the real Christianity. The message Hebrew gives us is you can't do that. You can't do that and be faithful to Jesus. That's why he opens with how amazing Jesus is. Because when you see how amazing Jesus is, when you really believe what Hebrews 1 says about Jesus, you won't want to fall back. You will see that I can endure with him. I can make it with him. When the real Jesus becomes recognizable to you, you will endure. And then you will want to make the real Jesus and the real gospel recognizable to everyone else around you, regardless of the cost. So since Jesus is the real deal, you can withstand the culture. You can withstand the attacks. He can help you in your temptations. You're not a weirdo because you're tempted and you're not a freak. You're not a sub-Christian, unworthy to be a Christian because you're tempted by sins. No, he helps us in our temptations and our struggles. This is the entire message of the book. Whatever temptations, whatever trials, whatever pressure, we look to Jesus. He's everything the Bible says he is. He's everything the Bible says he is. We have, don't have to worry about that. So what does the Bible say he is? Look at verse 1. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So, so these Hebrew Christians, they knew all the ways that God spoke to their forefathers. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, David, Isaiah. We go on and on and on. How did he speak to them? Dreams and visions prophets and burning landscape design and messages from angels. But now, what does he say? Verse two, but in these last days, in this age, this last era, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, Jesus is the full sermon of God. Jesus is the messenger and the message of God. All those other modes of communication and their message, they all land on Jesus. They're all pointing to Jesus and they're done. So what he's saying, Jesus is the ultimate message of the Bible. There's nothing else to turn to. What did Jesus say about Abraham in John 8? He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And when he saw it, he was glad. Jesus says, Abraham looked forward to me. What about Moses? Jesus says in John 5, if you would have believed what Moses wrote, 
you would believe in me. For Moses wrote about me. For everything lit, written in the law and the prophets points to me. So Jesus is saying, you can't go, why would you go back to Abraham? Abraham looked to me. Why would you go back to Moses? Moses looked to me. Jesus is the ultimate message of the Bible. And what we're seeing is he's more than a good teacher than, than a lot of people think he is. What we're about to see from Jesus and about Jesus in Hebrews 1, we are meant to be impressed. We, we are meant to be in awe. We are meant to be ready to worship and live for him. Look at verse 2. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God created the world through him. Jesus is the co-creator of all we see and all that we cannot see. And he's the heir of all things. Just, just think about what it means for Jesus to be the heir of all things. Everything. From Haley's comment to the rain that's puddling on the ground, Jesus says, it's all mine. I love in Toy Story when Woody's trying to convince Buzz that he's a toy and Woody lifts up his boot and he sees Andy's name scrawled on the bottom of it. And then he says, Buzz, you're a toy. And he lifts up his foot and he sees Andy written on the bottom of it. It's his. Biblically speaking, on the bottom of Mount Kilimanjaro is Jesus written underneath there. It's his. His name is etched on the bottom. Earthworms and polar bears and the moon rocks that are sitting in NASA, they all belong to Jesus. He's much bigger than we think. And look, look at verse 3. This is a high-voltage verse. So grab this and be electrocuted. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's incredible. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You can't read this verse and not be amazed with who Jesus is. If you read this and nothing happened to your heart and mind, you didn't actually read it. You didn't actually grab that high voltage cable. You didn't pay attention. So the God man, Jesus of Nazareth, the one born in the manger, the one who worked in a carpenter shop for 30 years, the one who died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he is the exact imprint of God. What is God like? We look at Jesus. What's God's temperament? We look at Jesus. He shows us. If you have atheistic or agnostic leanings, maybe you're not really sure about what's there. Jesus, the Bible is saying, Jesus is proof that God exists and that God loves us because Jesus is God and that Jesus loves us. This one always amazes me. It always gets me when it says he upholds the universe, not just the earth, not just you and me, and not just our galaxy, the universe, everything in it, he upholds it by the word of his power. Jesus is intimately involved in the universe, way more than we are. You probably aren't thinking about your yard right now until I made you think about it. Unless you're my father. He's always worried about chinch bugs in his yard, in these little brown patches. But he doesn't care about his neighbor's yard. His neighbor got all the chinch bugs in the world. He's fine. Why? Because it's not his yard. But 
Jesus cares about everything in the universe because it's his. That's why he cares about you. And he upholds the universe. He loves the trees. He's involved when there are pine cones and pine needles land in our yards. He guides the birds. He set up the orbits in the solar system. And Jesus didn't just pull back the universe like those cars that you pull back and you let go and it just kind of does its thing. That's how a lot of people think the world was created, that God just kind of made it and God's kind of stepped away and he's just letting it operate. That's not what the Bible's teaching. That he made it and he's intimately involved with it. He upholds it. He's the sustainer of it. And that word uphold, it doesn't just mean he guides it, make sure it doesn't get off the rails. The word uphold means he actually works in it. He's guiding it. Not like we would guide a toddler. When a toddler's learning to walk, you kind of walk beside it like, whoa, okay, okay. That's not how Jesus is working with the universe. This verse is teaching Jesus is the orchestrator in it. He's the one moving it, guiding it, and taking it to where it ultimately must go. And how does he do it? Does he do it with breaking a sweat? No. What does he say? By the word of his power, by his voice, by him speaking. And you see this in the Gospels. There's a storm on the Gospels. All the disciples are freaking out. They wake Jesus up and he says, okay, that's enough. Storm stops. He walks by a tree that doesn't have any fruit on it. And he says, that tree should have fruit on it. Hey, tree, you're dead. Tree dies. Lazarus is dead. Lazarus, why don't you come back to life? Boom. By the word of his power, he speaks all these things to obey him. I, I can't even get Siri to understand me. But the entire universe obeys Jesus because the whole universe is hardwired to obey his voice. And here's why this matters for you. He doesn't lack the power to help you. Jesus does not lack the power to help you. He doesn't lack the authority to serve you. He doesn't lack the love to shepherd you. Jesus wields this power, not out of spite, not to get people, not to bring about harm in the world. Jesus wields this power for your good. And he's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Is the Jesus you believe in this massive? He better be because this is the only Jesus that exists. And he's this massive and he's this loving. And look, about, look at what Hebrews teaches us next. After he holds the universe by the word of his power, what's the very next thing? Verse three, after making purification for sins. So he upholds the universe and now he goes right down to one moment on Golgotha, our lives with Christ. He makes purification for our sins. And now he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the gospel that Jesus did the dirty work for our sins. When we could not clean up our lives, he cleaned them up. He made purification for sins. He paid the penalty by dying on the cross and having our sins put upon him because he had none. Being labeled as a convicted criminal, dying the death of a criminal, his perfect life in our place cleanses our sins, washes them away, and now settles my account as someone who has been cleansed. And he can purify your life. We all sin and we all do things we know that are wrong and are, are wicked and we feel dirty and we feel ashamed. But Jesus says, I've come to cleanse you and I can purify you. 
if you will trust me, if you will come to me, if you will believe that I did die in your place and that I did rise again, you will be forgiven. And you'll see him sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is alive. He's not a corpse somewhere in Jerusalem. He's alive and reigning as the king over all. We've just learned that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king that we need. This is why he's way better than the angels. Look at verse four. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's way better than any angel and he's better than all of the angels combined. And the rest of this section from verse five till the end, he's going to keep jabbing and jabbing and jabbing on how Jesus is better than the angels. And so I read that and I wonder why. Why is that a concern? Well, there were some areas of Jewish life that were enamored with angels. And you can kind of see why. They're powerful beings, more powerful than humans. They do what God commands. They've seen the throne. They would speak to the forefathers. They would bring out messages. They, they would wage war on behalf of God in some of these battles. They would do incredible things. And you can see why. I mean, these, when people encountered angels in the Bible, they were not precious moments. People would encounter angels and say, woe is me. Even the apostles, when some of them would see angels, they would bow down and worship. And the angel would say, whoa, don't do that. You worship God alone. And they would say, okay, yeah, and they'd get up. Angels are terrifying. And you can even kind of think about today. People like the idea of angels. Oh, they're spiritual beings, kind of cool. Like, yeah, it's spirituality, kind of mystical, neat stuff. Maybe we have guardian angels. And here Hebrews 1 says, look, so what if you have a guardian angel? You have a guardian Christ, someone who's better than the angels. How is he better than the angels? Verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Answer, he's never said that to any angel. Jesus is the son of God. Angels are not sons. They're created beings. But Jesus is the eternal son of God, more impressive than the angels. Verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, the firstborn of the dead, when Jesus rose from the dead, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In fact, God the Father says, I want every angel, you worship him. And look at this megaton statement of the Father in verse eight. V verse eight, you've got to see who's speaking here. But of the Son, he says, who's the he? It's God the Father. What does he say about God the Son? Verse eight, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Here you have God the Father telling God the Son, your throne, O God, God the Father telling Jesus, he is God. You are God. Your throne, O God, is forever. Beloved, Jesus is God. Eternal, fully God. He's not God with training wheels. He's not diet God. He's not God Jr. But he is full on God for you. You must know that Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus isn't fully God, that he isn't the eternal son of God, that he is a kind of created being and kind of like an angel, and he became God-like. But Hebrews 1 devastates that deviation of divine truth. So which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? If Jesus were an angel, that would include him. But he's not an angel. 
He's the son of God. He's never said that to any angel. He's only said it to the son. And no one is allowed to be worshipped except God alone. And God the Father tells the angels, you worship the son. And no one is allowed to sit on the throne except Jesus, except God. So why is Jesus allowed to sit on the throne? Because he is God. So, beloved, Jesus, what he's showing us is the real deal. And look, even in verse 14, he talks about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? He says, look, angels serve you. Don't be impressed by them. They're your servants. So Jesus is so big, so mighty, so great, so amazing, so awesome. Why does this matter? Because Jesus is the real deal, your confidence in life is settled. Christ is your confidence. Now you have nothing to fear. Attacks from atheist authors, BuzzFeed bloggers, they are no threat to Christianity. They're no threat to Christ. They're no threat to you. The opinions of men are no threat to you because you follow the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And there's no reason to dial back your faith, no reason to compromise your Christian faith for your career because if this is who Jesus is, he is worth following. He is worth trusting. Since Jesus is God guiding the universe, your fear and your anxiety, they're, they're no longer needed. You don't need the coping mechanism of anxiety to get through life. Now you have Christ. You can trust him with your life. Since Jesus made past tense after making purification for sins, your account's been settled. Your guilt isn't needed anymore to get through life. You're free from sin, Satan, and death. You are 100% forgiven in Christ. And since Jesus is the real deal, you can turn from all of the sins that are tempting you. You can by his power as he lives to intercede for you. Since Jesus is the real deal, you can count it all joy when the culture turns on you and, and Jesus will see us through it all. The curtain, Hebrews 1 has pulled back the curtain on reality for us, has shown us the universe, has shown us our lives and we find them rooted in Christ, guided by Christ, protected with Christ and sustained by Christ and take all the flash photography you want. Nothing will be spoiled. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.